What's up, OUXers? I am very excited to introduce you to this conversation with Sarah Barrett and Rachel Price. Sarah Barrett is a principal IA manager at Microsoft, and joining her today is Rachel Price. She's a senior information architect at Microsoft, so they work together. Uh, Sarah actually brought Rachel onto her team. Um, They've worked together in many capacities before um, and are just an awesome pair, and I, I absolutely love this conversation. This is the first time I did a double interview, and we did a pretty good job of not talking over each other, which I think is a big win. Um, We also had a fascinating conversation. So together, they've been working on Microsoft Learn, which is basically Microsoft's documentation library, um, which, as you can imagine, is an incredible information architecture challenge. And one of the many tools that they've been using to uh, to tackle this incredible complexity is object-oriented UX. So we talk about um, all sorts of information architecture topics, but um, it's, it was really interesting to see how they are using object-oriented UX at Microsoft. Um, really fascinating conversation. And uh, yeah, let's just dive right in. Welcome to the Object Oriented UX podcast, a podcast about tackling complexity head on, gracefully organizing massive amounts of information, and designing scalable, future proof, and of course, naturally intuitive object oriented user experiences. An OUXer is a powerful blend of information architect, business analyst, facilitator, and UX strategist. If this sounds like you or what you aspire to, you are so in the right place. I'm Sophia Prater, UX designer, chief evangelist of Object or UX, and your host. Let's jump into it. Rachel Price, Sarah Barrett, welcome to the OUX podcast. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Already all talking at once. Wonderful. The first crosstalk of the day. <laughs> yes, let's just get it out of our systems. And no, it's going to happen. So this is our first, uh, this is my first double interview. So I'm going to do my best to um, to kind of moderate um, when we all get really excited and everybody wants to talk at once. Um, but that's cool. We're going to we're going to deal with it. It's going to be awesome. Um, so a first thing I want to talk to y'all about is library science. Cause you both come <laughs> from a library science background. Is that why you, y'all are just like, uh, work besties, I guess, <laughs> doing everything together. Uh, yeah. So I actually met Rachel when I went to speak to her grad school class. Um, I did a, like, I've been in the field for two years. Let's talk about my career kind of a thing, um, as a very like confident 25 year old. And, um, one of the things that I said to the group was like, Hey, you get jobs by talking to people and meeting people. And so like, please email me. Here's my email address. Let's get coffee if you're interested in IA. Like let's do it. And there was a, it was a room of like 50 people and one person did, and it was Rachel. And, uh, we immediately hit it off. Uh, we hired her at factor. And then when I'd been at Microsoft for a couple of years, uh, I actually knew I was going on maternity leave and I was so protective of this practice that I had built. And I was like, please come, (laughs) please come protect it while I'm out. And I left it in great hands and uh, it's been amazing. So yeah, the library school is the connection for us. And I think it, I think it makes us think in some similar ways. And that's, um, yeah, Rachel, did you have something to add to that? Oh, no, I was just trying to say that uh, after Sarah came to that course, I just really took her to heart and then uh, harassed her endlessly until then she uh, 
introduced me to all the folks at Factor and I met all of them and did a lot of great work with Factor. And then we kind of went our separate ways for a couple of years and then rejoined at Microsoft. That's, I mean, that just goes to show for everybody that's um, on the job hunt or still in school that's listening. I mean, you gotta be a go-getter. You have to be the one to say, hey, I'm gonna actually take so-and-so up on their offer to um, to mentor or you know email me questions. Be the one because nine out of 10 other people are not gonna do that. So you really do have to kind of take that initiative um, even if you are, uh, even if it feels uncomfortable to you. So Sarah, you just mentioned, like, you think that that kind of makes y'all, y'all think about things the same way because of that library science background. Um, how do you feel like coming at information architecture from a library science perspective? How does that change how you think about information architecture? How is it different than somebody that might come from, we have a lot of information architects in the community that come from a philosophy background, um, or of course, UX designers that end up leaning more information architecture like myself, um, that comes from actually like my background is in industrial design and product design. Then I went into UX and now I'm basically an information architecture, an information architect disguised as a UX designer. <laughs> um, so what is it? mean to think like a library scientist? Yeah, uh, I think there are a couple of things to it. One, I think, is the, um, the very like deep realization that the problems we deal with are older than the internet. Um, that's the that's the idea of a lot of the writing that Rachel and I do online is that there are these classic papers of library science. There are these these classic ideas that are written for a completely different context. They're written for uh, librarians in research libraries helping people. Uh, answer research questions, or they are written to explain how people interact with a card catalog. But we were not issued new brains with a Wi-Fi password. Like we all still, nope. like like your point about lizard brains, like we all still have these same brains. Um, and humans interact with information in a set number of ways, or like in, in ways. doesn't mean they can't evolve over time, but it's not all new. And I find um, UX in general has a huge recency bias. And uh, you come into every single project you're on and you have to do all of your research from scratch and establish all of the first principles from scratch. And we choose to not do that. We choose, I, I send people PDFs of articles all the time. They're so tired of it. Um, where somebody's like, hey, why do we do this navigation this way? I'm like, okay, NASA did a study in 2018. And like, we do it this way because there's 30 years of research going back that like, this is how you construct a hierarchy. Um, like that appreciation for the history, I think is the biggest thing. That makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Rachel, what do you think? Yeah. One of the things that I teach, uh, so I teach incoming UX designers in the field um, at the School for Visual Concepts here in Seattle. And Sarah and I have talked about this a lot. I often think like if there's one thing I hope these students walk away with after hanging out with like a librarian UX designer IA for six weeks, what is it? And the thing I've, I always come back to is if I can just teach you, you know, new designer or new to the field designer, how to see the world um, as like blocks of information, right? Information objects. I compare it to uh, what are those 3D puzzles that were like when we were kids, like the mind's eye puzzles where you have to like cross your eyes and then suddenly you see this oh, magic eye. Picture. The magic, magic eye. eye. That's yes. what it is. <laughs> like my goal is to get uh, designers to develop that magic eye. And instead of just seeing a web page as a web page or a series of like visual blocks. It's like actual, you know, information objects, which obviously it is, is a huge part of IA. But I think 
teaching someone to see and perceive of experiences as collections of information objects really opens the door to thinking about experiences as these like structured things that we're walking through instead of just static pages on the internet. Yes, 100%. So so what I'm hearing is that information architecture is more than just the site map. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> Let's just talk about that for a second. <laughs> Sarah, Hi. what are your thoughts on the site map? <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever designed a sitemap. <laughs> I've never, I've never what? had a professional job that was not as an information architect. Um, you know, I, I, I had a lot of other terrible jobs, but like this has been my entire career and I'm, I might have designed a sitemap, but I'm not sure. Um, my, my favorite anecdote about this is when I, and which is like, I tell myself sometimes just to be like, oh man, we've come so far in the practice at Microsoft. Uh, when I started at Microsoft, I'd been there about three months maybe. And there was no IA practice before I started. I don't really know why they hired me. Um, they were kind of just like, cool, we need one. Here's an office. And then we figured it out from there. And I was in a meeting with uh, someone higher up in the org. And um, he asked me he kind of offhand, hey, have you decided what to do about the IA on docs? And I was like, that's a huge question. And I started kind of going off about like the complexities involved because that is what I do. And he went, well, it goes across the top or down the side. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, you mean a global navigation. And like in your mind, my entire job is picking seven things to go in that. And then and deciding if it will be on the, the left side or on the top side. Exactly. Or maybe on the right. Or maybe you can dock it on the bottom. These are the big decisions we make as information architects. Not. And like not to and not to rag on him because like he has come <laughs> so far and is now like a huge advocate. But I was just like, oh, we've got some work to do, buddy. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I've designed a sitemap um, before um, and I, I always just end up with um, problems with it because it doesn't exactly do what I want it to do. And that's a lot of where a lot of the object-oriented UX methodologies came from is like trying to do information architecture as a, as a, tr you know, trained as a user experience designer and a very kind of traditional task flow based um, usability testing way. Um, my only tool for information architecture in the first few, like first, I don't know, two years of my career was the sitemap. And it would just never do what I wanted it to do, which is of course, connecting content. Um, so I've always kind of hit a wall with that and have, you know, created other artifacts instead of the sitemap. Uh, Rachel, what are your thoughts on the sitemap? Oh, I was going to say that one of my favorite, uh, sarcastic, favorite requests is can you do the IA right can you just do the IA for this or what's the IA for this which is uh, similar to what Sarah said and that yeah everyone's you know thinking about sitemaps which we've approximated and renamed them navigation models because I'm like okay well I, I can certainly make you a hierarchy of boxes but I would like to be clear what this represents and the thing I always struggle with is how flat like uh, these traditional IA deliverables are when I wish when I'm making them, I could just put someone in a room and have like a, uh, you know, some 3D experience where you can follow the threads to all the relationships of the things, you know, almost like a, uh, like a detective and all his yarn, you know, connecting all the <laughs> images and stuff. Like I want you to be able to walk those paths. Um, because I think this is what object oriented UX gets at too, is those relationships are what really 
matter and give context and meaning and something like a sitemap or even a navigation model, which looks like a sitemap half the time is just missing 90% of the real connections that actually bring that whole experience to life. And it, it yeah, exactly. And, and it really, the, that sitemap is not going back to the information objects. It's not really showing you what those information objects are. What are those valuable things within this experience? It's showing you how you move from page to page not necessarily how different objects are connecting with each other in a meaningful way, giving that context. And, um, you know, I, oh man, I'm going to butcher somebody's quote. It might be Andrew Hinton. Let's just say Andrew Hinton. He definitely said something similar to this, but um, that, you know, the relationships between the thing defines the thing. Um, Ooh, no, that's Richard Saul Warman. Definitely. Um, So as we can connect things, we're, we're definitely helping define and helping our users understand what that thing is, which page to page connections doesn't necessarily do that for a user. Okay. The, um, we have the about section and the like our people page is underneath the about section. Okay. That's not going to really help the user under get a mental model of what this, what this world is all about. Um, so, um, so how did you, uh, <laughs> you had a lot of work to do when you got started at Microsoft and it's come a long way. How did you get started with that? How did those, um, Sarah, how did those conversations start where you were saying, okay, we've got a lot of work to do. How did you start bringing in this, um, this more, I guess, like dynamic, fully, fully formed version of information architecture with content modeling and identifying objects and figuring out all those relationships. How did you start bringing that to Microsoft? Yeah, so uh, one part of it was just a really lucky accident of timing, which was that in the first few weeks I was there, um, there was a, a big pitch up to the kind of higher ups to do a thing that had some, some weird internal code name at the time, but became Microsoft Learn. And uh, that was a huge departure for the site. It had always been a a really enormous documentation site and was the place where Microsoft was centralizing. So Microsoft Docs is a place where Microsoft is centralizing all user-facing technical documentation. Um, Pretty much, there are a few exceptions. But so it's this huge site. It's kind of what MSDN became. Like MSDN used to mail people CDs of like all the documentation for Microsoft information, uh, for Microsoft products. And like, that became a website. It became this huge website that uh, that we were working on. Um, but they were, wanted to launch a microlearning platform, something that would be more interactive, that would be gamified, that would track progress, that would have users sign into things. All of these changes that were nothing we had ever done before. And in, I think about forty-five minutes, I, they were like, "Well, what are we going to do with this? Like, what would you recommend?" And I said here's here's a content model, which is what I've always called the kind of like output of uh, the OUX process. Um, and I think I even like really styled it carefully to look like the examples from your, um, from your article. And because um, I was like, oh God, it's my first week. Um, <laughs> and it was a, it was fully ripped off and then simplified from like some competitors because we had no information to go into it. Um, I write about the process in, um, 
in that article on medium that I think. Yes. Uh, we'll definitely and, link to that. Um, yeah, I was reading that earlier and I have so many, so many de- detailed questions, but please keep going. Yeah. So there's like a really in the weeds, how we did it kind of thing about that process, which again, took about 45 minutes. And I was uh, very nervous to present it because I had never, uh, like I'd never had a great relationship with engineering and I hadn't really worked directly with PMs as a consultant. I'd usually been hired by, um, I, I'd done a lot of taxonomy work and been hired by people who manage that. I'd been hired a lot by marketing teams and that kind of thing. And so, I remember I like put it up in front of the in front of the team and started trying to like explain what a concept model and how it would like what a concept model was and how it would work and everything and their engineering manager who's one of my favorite people looked at it like looked at our technical chat and like ah it's a relational database diagram we'll build it (laughs) and that was it like they immediately got it they it is still that on the site and we're like looking this quarter at maybe changing it because it's now a hundred in internet years because that was years ago. Yeah. Um, and so that won so much, um, so much like social capital in terms of being able to make things that worked that way because everybody was very impressed with how like learn just worked, um, which is not to say it's perfect. It's not, but it's so much easier than so many things we've worked on. Uh, so there was that. And then it was a ton of just like relationship building and working the org. So like having a few wins like that, so people trusted me and would be kind of willing to go in on things. Um, and then making myself useful for about another 18 months. And then yeah. everybody was like, we should have a content model for this huge site, shouldn't we? And I was like, yeah, we should. And we've uh, been on that, been on that train ever since. Wow. So it was, um, it was the, the engineering engineering that actually saw the value in it. And they were like, yes, we recognize this. Um, that's so great to hear. I mean, 100%, uh, doing this object oriented UX work content modeling, it, it just helps that translation so much into, into development. And when I first started, I mean, that's why I called it object oriented UX because I was playing off of and ripping off of object oriented programming. Um, the funny thing is though, is I always say that it's, it's just, that's icing on the cake is that it helps you. It helps you communicate with your developers. You're going to get buy-in from development because they're going to be like, uh, yeah, that's how we work. Uh, oh, you're telling me that I don't have to reverse engineer wireframes to figure out the data model. Wonderful. <laughs> There's the data model right there for me. Um, but really that like that main, I, this is a kind of going back to what, what we were talking about in the very beginning of the, of the chat is that like, this goes back so much farther than the internet. This is the way that we think. We think about these information objects and that users are, that human beings, we are, we are object oriented. Um, developers too, though, which is really nice for selling it. Yeah, Rachel, what do you have to say yeah. about that? I mean, the engineers and the designers and the PMs, we're all human beings, right? And so if we can't get clear on what it is we're trying to make, then we can't possibly make it clear for our users. I'm really fascinated by the kind of social aspect of doing object-oriented UX in terms of socializing it with the team. Uh, One of my favorite engineers we work with was telling me over and over, clarity is kindness. It's like a Brene Brown quote. He's like, it's my favorite quote, clarity is kindness. And I ended up writing a whole talk using this quote, like what it means to work with teams. And as I'm, I'm thinking about it, I'm sitting here and I'm like, wow, like, you know, one of the things that you talk about as being the um, uh, positive of OUX is that it smokes out complexity early and it helps you kind of get clear on things. And it's not just about getting clear on things for your users. 
it's about getting clear on the feature team too, right? And being able to communicate that clarity to your designer, to your PM, to your engineer, and have your engineer communicate clarity back to you. Uh, that is kindness and kindness tends to make people happy and <laughs> to make work go a little bit better and people are more willing to, um, you know, give you, like take that leap of faith with you and try out a new process like OUX, which can be a little involved on the stuff that we do, but because you're creating that clarity, ultimately, like people, humans like clarity. We do not love ambiguity. That's the whole reason we do this. And it's, it comes around to the feature team too. Right. I mean, you can't, like, I think you already said this and I'm just going to echo you. Like you can't create good software if you and the whole team don't understand (laughs) the software. Like if you don't understand what you're doing and you're not communicating with each other and that ambiguity, I mean, when you, we have miscommunications, miscommunications breed distrust and not, if we're all, we have that clarity and on the flip side, clarity will breed trust. And that's what we want on our teams. We want to, we want to all trust each other. Um, so when it comes to actually, so one other thing I'll just add to that and I'll, I'll build upon it is this idea that I've been using this metaphor that I've been using of x-ray vision and that object oriented UX and content modeling, it gives you, which I'll kind of like use those interchangeably here, um, is going to give you x-ray vision into the data in like a really nice visual way. And through working collaboratively with your team and bringing them into the process, bringing your subject matter experts into the process, not only does it give you x-ray vision, but then you can give everybody else on the team x-ray vision. And how magical is that? And how invaluable does that make you as a member of the team? If you're helping everybody else feel like a badass because they all have x-ray vision too. And everybody gets this like insane clarity before designing a bunch of wireframes. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about, um, so I know when, before we uh, started recording, uh, you had the question for me about how to, um, how to actually, um, sell object oriented UX, how to get it, you know, how to get buy-in. And it sounds like y'all did a really good job of that. Um, I'll just add to that. I mean, definitely getting your, um, getting support from the engineering team, but what about when it comes to the business hooks? Um, what about when it comes to maybe an engineering team that is very, um, entrenched in agile or some sort of bastardization of agile, um, where you're all of a sudden saying, Hey, we want to do all this information architecture work. And we want to do all this holistic thinking, like, how does that work? So how I have like my main ways, I guess, of, um, of talking about object or UX to that audience. And I guess, um, to those particular concerns, is this going to take a long time? Um, and, um, is it gonna, is it gonna be, is this, are we going back to waterfall, um, would be to say that one, this is going to avoid so much rework in the future. Um, and I definitely want to talk to y'all about that, um, about how with Microsoft learn, how it helped build you build a very kind of, I think you use the words durable and scalable, um, and helped you kind of grow in a way that avoided kludginess. Um, but I, I, I talked to all of those points that this is going to help you really um, figure out that foundation so that you're not redoing your information architecture. You know, you're not iterating on your information architecture um, because that is really expensive. <laughs> you don't want to iterate on your information architecture every two weeks. Um, 
that is like, that's like iterating on the foundation of your home. Like you don't want to be iterating on moving the walls around, um, or the foundation around, like move the furniture around, paint the walls all day, but like, you don't want to be moving the walls around. You don't want to be iterating on that. Um, and then also another thing that I, um, that I speak to when it comes to like, how do you, how do you convince people of this? Um, it's the rework piece. It's the communication piece too. We're going to be able to communicate better. And, and then when it comes to iterating, we're iterating, we're still iterating here, but we're iterating in a way, which I, again, I want to talk to y'all about this, about the durability and the modular aspect of what you found with Microsoft Learn, but you are able to iterate instead of iterating by a, a backlog of features you're iterating by rolling a new object in, improving on an object, which actually we're still iterating here, but we're just doing it by, it's very simply, we're doing it by noun instead of by verb, <laughs> um, which is a better way to, in my opinion, to divide up complexity. So, all right. So we could talked a lot about buy-in. Let's go back to kind of um, the Microsoft Learn project. Um, it's such a, such a great case study. Um, you said in that article that it took you about a week to get to that content model. Like that's not long at all. How did, uh, Sarah, how did you come up with those objects? I think the objects were um, like course, module, certification, achievement. How did you get to that set of objects? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a learning path, a module and a, a unit achievement and a user. Basically those are the building blocks of that blocks of that experience. And I think the thing that might've iterated the most there was just like the names, um, which I feel like is something that I have, I've learned. Um, now when we do our content models, we are extremely strict with our feature teams where you do not get to have meaningless words. Like these things have to be real things in the world and module means nothing. Everybody agrees. <laughs> so like yeah. learnings from the past. Um, there were several competitors that the uh, PM team, or not, com not competitors of ours, but like people that existed out in the world or sites that existed out in the world that the uh, the executives were looking at as like, hey, why aren't we doing that? And uh, there had been a couple of early, um, a couple of early designs and prototypes and that kind of thing for this experience that used our existing infrastructure that were not going to get us there. Um, you know, Docs is very much based around the idea of like having an article in a TOC and you don't table of turn, contents. Yeah, sorry, table of contents. Yes, our our lives are very much about tables of contents on Docs. <laughs> uh, so, like, you don't just turn that into an interactive micro fun like gamified micro learning experience. It's an article in a table of contents. Like, it's great. It's useful. It's not fun. Um, so I could see really quickly that that wasn't going to get us there. And so I did teardowns of the competitors that we were looking at, or you know, those other reference sites, they don't compete in our space, um, and to see what made them work. And there were a couple of things that we kind of took out of there seeing specifically around like, um, the authors were very concerned about where they got to reuse content um, versus where it was like the same object. Um, cause that's, that's a really hard problem to solve at scale often. Um, 
and then uh, the entire notion of like gamification achievements was new for us. And so uh, there were some really important insights from doing that teardown of the other sites to realize that like, okay, we have to keep the reuse and the achievement at the same level. Um, so like on our site right now, um, one unit, a unit lives in one module. It can't be reused between modules. A module can be reused between learning paths. You get an achievement for completing a module. You don't get an achievement for completing a unit because otherwise like we would be making people do work um, repeatedly in order to get that achievement and that kind of thing. Um, and that we decided that wasn't the good user experience. And so there were, there were details like that about how you make this kind of thing work um, that were really important. Um, and it was also about like looking at the full set of features that one of these other sites had, like all of their content objects or um, all, like, all their objects become content types because I've been trying to like make it palatable to content people. Mm -hmm. um, we can use them yeah. interchangeably here. Content type, object, we'll <laughs> say for this conversation, totally interchangeable. For me, the, uh, the, the like specialized terminology is the first to go to like get somebody on board where I'm like, what do you want to call it? We'll call it that. <laughs> like they're all pickles now, let's go. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, it was uh, really about like looking at the full set of stuff that these other sites had and then scoping it down to the least we could build and still have a reasonable site or like a reasonable experience because we also did this in a matter of months. Um, I, th I started in September, the, f the, the beta of this launched in May, I think, um, which for a brand new experience and a whole lot of new content and all kinds of stuff like that is pretty quick for us. So that's, I mean, that's really, that's really cool. It's not something I, so I've, I definitely have looked at competitors or done like comparative analysis to start thinking about what the objects are, but you actually built content models for them. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a thing that we've started doing for most, uh, features. When we start working, we'll go look at reference, you know, whether the competitors are in our space or not, they're usually not competitors in our space. And we'll actually do a quick content model, um, for those so that we can start to wrap our heads around, uh, maybe it's a space I'm not familiar with, but maybe there are objects out in the world that are recognizable that we can reuse, you know, or use as our basis. Um, sometimes this is looking, you know, just digging through a whole site and making a content model that way. Uh, sometimes Sarah and I have gone and just been like, hey, does anyone have an ontology for this that they've published? Like, can we grab objects from that? Is there, is there a set of relationships that someone else has already like sat and thought through that maybe we want to borrow from? And that has been hugely helpful for two things. One, it helps us as the IAs start to kind of wrap our heads around what some of the possibilities might be that are uh, logical based on stuff that's already happening out in the world. And two, um, it, it kind of adds a little bit of credibility uh, when we come in with ideas or uh, hypotheses about how a thing should go. If we can you know, cite other sources out in the world, uh, it helps us quite a bit. The other thing is that um, like Rachel's point about teaching uh, people who are brand new to information architecture to like see the information objects, it's really useful to be like, hey, you thought this was a cool experience. They've got a content model. Did you know that there's a content model under this whole thing? That's what makes it work. That's why it's so easy. And like being able to tease it out and show people the pieces uh, really helps because otherwise they're like, why do we have a content model? Nobody else needs a content model, which is not true, but. Or conversely, uh, when we have 
stakeholders who are coming in like, we need to do it better than company X because man, that experience is just so bad. And we can bring in and say like, hey, I can point to the reasons why you think this is bad. Right? Sure, the like broken not... content model. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And not to like frame it negatively, but what it does is it gives someone this moment to like, it gives them a framework to hold on to. And that's a teaching moment for our stakeholders. They're like, oh, I knew something was up. I could feel it in my bones. And you're like, yes, your instincts were correct. Here's a one way to frame where those instincts were coming from and why you feel that way. Right. These, this was annoying to you because these two things that should be connected, <laughs> that are connected in your head and that actually like in just truth of the world are actually not connected on this particular site. We'll do a better job of connecting these things. Exactly. So I think this is so interesting because I, one thing that I've, um, an example, a silly example that I've given about how um, our industry can actually kind of get on the same page about some of this stuff um, is a visual design example. So I always say, I love people in circles. I'm like, people should just always be in circles because you just always do that. And we should come up with other conventions like timestamp. If you got a timestamp, like just put it in the upper right-hand corner, like just always have it in the upper right. hand. It doesn't matter what your thing is. And that way people, the world, humanity will start just knowing, like if they're looking for a timestamp, it's going to be in the upper right-hand corner, unless there's a really good reason to not put it there. What if we could start creating these, you know, people are creating these ontologies, but like sharing these ontologies, um, sharing these ontologies more. So we're users, it's actually better for the user as well, not just for us. So I go from one learning site to another learning site and maybe, you know, the visual design, the brand, maybe some of the things that I can do to those objects are different, but by and large, the objects are sort of connected in the same way in a way that sort of makes sense. Yeah. I mean, imagine how much you could give folks freedom to iterate and be creative and like do new things if you're not penalizing the user in the process, right? You're creating, you're putting these constraints around maybe the structure or the content model of the thing. And then with those constraints in place now, you know, I think constraints breed creativity, right? Like I fully agree with that quote, 100%. whoever said it. And now you can focus on your branding. You can focus on your visual design. You can focus on some like fun micro interactions or something. I don't know, but yes. you're not, like you said, you're not moving the foundation unintentionally while you do that. Right. And I always say like, I, yeah, I mean, just to build on that, I always say that object or UX is not about saying that objects are more important than actions or getting stuff done. Like all of this work is so that users can get stuff done more quickly because they can just come to the site and they're like, oh yeah, like these are the things here and they connect like I'm on a new event site that I've never been on before, but this is like connecting similar to way that the meetup connects stuff and way the way that Eventbrite connects stuff. And it's like, I've got my, I've got my events, I've got my hosts, I've got my venues. They all kind of connect in a way that just, so then I can go ahead and I can just start getting shit done because I'm not trying to learn my, feel my way around this environment. Um, so for users, it helps them sort of cut to the chase to just get things done in a way that, um, they don't have to do a lot of learning about the environment and where they are. And then for us as designers, it helps us just kind of move on to, to innovating because we have that nice foundation. Uh, Noah Linsky, who is a uh, an information architect and a specialist in um, in information visualization or like data visualization, had a great tweet a little while ago where he was like, "Listen, 
there is a reason why we don't invent a new kind of chart every time we want to present data. Like, sure, there might be an optimized way to present this kind of information, like this specific information to a user. But then you have to like teach them the language of the chart, how to read it, how to compare it to other things, all before they get to the actual message you are trying to convey. And so frequently in our experiences, and especially like we're in a learning and documentation space, interacting with our site is not the point. Somebody is trying to troubleshoot their SQL installation. They're trying to figure out whether they want to use Cosmos DB. <laughs> like they are, they are learning R, like they're doing something else. And we need to be as conventional as possible, I think. Um, and like in order to facilitate that learning because we don't want to have to make them learn the site and then also learn the hard thing that they are learning. Oh my gosh, yes, set, set the egos aside. <laughs> <laughs> um, this reminds me of, I'm rereading uh, Badass, Making Users Awesome, the Kathy Sierra book. And she talks about, she. it's a great book if y'all if y'all haven't read it. And if anybody hasn't read it, it's, it's awesome. I'm rereading it right now. So she does these little um, clip art comics and she has this, like these two people on a date. And what the, the guy's saying, like, I'm really interested in being being an expert at learning the tripod. And it's like, no, she, he wants to become an expert at photography, right? And so you are always should be thinking about the wider context of what the user is trying to do. Like no user at the very micro context. One thing that I say all the time is nobody's coming to your website to play with your calendar picker. They're coming for the event. And then even beyond that, they're coming to connect with other people to feel, um, to feel community. Right. I'm always the jerk in the meeting who's like, okay, step back with me here. Did, did someone wake up this morning thinking, man, I really want to thumb through a unit. (laughs) (laughs) I really want to navigate back and forth through a set of units this morning. That's, that's my goal for the day. Right. And it's like, no, that's like, it's so easy to get caught up in that though. It's so easy to get, you know, you get so close to something and you think that the user goal is to, you know, click a certain button. And that's just, it's just always going to be, you know, it's like, take a step wider and then take another step wider and you might have the context that's wide enough. Um, Hey, can we talk about accessibility a little bit? Sure. Total, total pivot. So Sarah, you recently yes. wrote an article. So this is the way that we sort of reconnected because this article was a very incendiary title. Um, what was the title? You, your information architecture is an accessibility problem. <sighs> Ouch. So that was making its rounds uh, around the OUX forum, actually. And we were all writing about it. And I went to go read it. And then I was like, who, who wrote this? I want to write. I want to read everything that this person wrote. And I was like, oh, Sarah, hi. <laughs> Hello, you. Come, let's just talk about it on the podcast. Um, so, one of the things that I kind of want to uh, also shout out to um, Upma Singh, who was the one that found your article and originally posted it. And I was like, this is awesome. Um, so, you talk about shallow and deep navigation structures. Can you explain to us a little bit like what's the difference between a shallow and a deep navigation structure and why is one better for accessibility versus the other one? Sure. Um- this is actually kind of funny. This is the part of the article and the talk that inspired it that everybody like is like, oh, about. And it's one of the oldest ideas in a lot of, uh, a lot of IA. Basically, um, there are exceptions to this, but usually uh, users will have a much easier time finding something if you have a lot of items in a small number of levels. 
So, you know, a two or three level navigation with maybe 10 or 15 things in each level rather than uh, a, flat, a five or six level deep navigation with three things in each level. Um, there are a few exceptions to this. Um, and there's actually that, that, that paper uh, that NASA did a while ago that I, I send out to people is like one of the reasons why I think about it this way. Um, but there are a few exceptions to this that have to do with um, how extremely well known the actual items in that hierarchy are. So the example I like to use is that um, if you are trying to situate something in a state, like a United States state, uh, 50 things in a dropdown is just fine. Um, that's that's a, a mental model we have, and you do not need to flatten that. If you tried to organize those, uh, if you tried to organize those states into like mountain and west and northeast, you introduce a lot of ambiguity because those are ambiguous categories on top of specific categories. Um, so, like you can adjust the specificity and um, and uh, you can adjust the, the levels and numbers based on the specificity of the actual items. Um, and there are, there are cases where when you have very specific items, um, introducing more levels can be helpful, but like generally speaking, I think like it's in the polar bear book, it's in everyday IA, I think like it's in all of the things. You just don't wanna have too many levels in your nav. And we all know and that kind of intuitively when we were kind of, when we go through those navigations that are multiple levels deep and you're like, this site hasn't been redesigned since 1995, I think, because it just feels, feels old fashioned. It also feels like you are having to do a complex choreography of mouse movements to be able to get that far down. Yeah. And the thing that really stuck out about it to me is that like, this is a truism. We all kind of know this. And I have had so many arguments for putting fewer things in navigation or not hiding as many things under higher categories, that kind of thing. It's a thing we just know. But the, the big revelation for me was how disproportionately it impacts people who use screen readers. Um, I think I'm going to forget the exact numbers because I haven't given this talk in a while, but I think it's something like it usually takes people who use screen readers uh, four times as long to complete tasks in a usability study as it does sighted people um, or people who don't because not everybody who is blind uses a screen reader, et cetera. Um, when you have a deep and narrow navigation that jumps to eight times as long. So like it, it is disproportionately worse for people who use certain kind of dis assist devices, which is like the definition of an accessibility problem. Mm -hmm. And I, I will stand by those numbers because I just reread that article and that's, that's, those are the numbers you had okay, in the article. Cool. <laughs> so I'm guessing those are the right numbers. Um, but I mean, if it's, you know, eight times is ridiculous. I mean, that's just, we've got, we've definitely have some serious work to do. And I don't talk about this in the article, but um, one of the wonderful things about being on this team at Microsoft has been that uh, the Microsoft in general and like the, the our development team is extremely committed to accessibility. Like they care so much. And so we've gotten to do studies with uh, like blind developers and that kind of thing who are using our site. And it has borne out everything we find in these. Like the site is technically very accessible. The, like the front end devs do so much work they still can't find things in a table of contents because it's too deep. Like it doesn't make sense. The labels aren't good. It's all of the, like the, our content model is all over the place right now because we still haven't fixed all of it. Like all of those things um, really deeply impact the usability because something can be compliant with ADA standards, with WCAG standards, like all of that. And still nobody who navigates with a mouse or who uses a screen reader or who is dyslexic or any of the other things will be able to use it. Those two things can both be true. So what about um, 
So we know now that, okay, we want to keep our navigation shallow. Um, what about having like a web-like navigation, which is often what we're creating when we're creating this, um, you know, cross-linking and all this connect, uh, contextual navigation. Um, does that help with accessibility all to have like a, to have a more web-like where you have kind of relevant content always linked to whatever piece of content that you're on? Yeah. I mean, I think in general, the best thing you can do, and there are lots of things, but like from an information architecture perspective, one of the best things we can do is really solidify that content model. Um, like if we know what our objects are, if they have standard patterns and they don't shape shift, they're not masked, all of those things that you talk about. Um, if we have standard calls to action on them that are in standard places, um, all of these things where you know, through the OUX process, we're just making decisions and sticking by them and keeping things consistent. That's something that the developers can code in a more accessible way. That's something where once somebody learns to use an object once using their screen reader, using whatever their assistive device is, they can do it. Like it makes a huge difference. So it doesn't do everything, but just doing your IA, like, and that's the whole idea of the, the article, like just do your IA properly and it will be better. Sarah, it sounds like you're almost saying like there's this layer of um, when we don't make an experience coherent, we're putting that burden on the user, right? And we can make these assumptions, right or wrong, that, well, we're not being super, super coherent, but people can figure it out. And so it's not a business need. They're figuring it out. And I think one of the key arguments um, that you've made that is really powerful here is Sure, maybe you can assume some people can figure it out, but when you are missing that layer of semantic meaning or that coherence that's actually built into the structure of the experience, folks who are using assistive devices um, or you know, folks who otherwise have accessibility uh, challenges, there is no way for them to make up that gap of coherence, or it is far, far, far mm -hmm. bigger of a gap um, than we assume. And so, and, and that gap is just like too big, like too big to be okay. Right. I mean, even somebody that has uh, learning disabilities or autism, as you're moving, as you're changing the structure of an object, especially if you're doing that arbitrarily, it's a lot harder for somebody with autism or a learning disability to actually make that connection and to say, oh, this thing looks differently over here than it does over here, but it's actually still the same thing. It's going to be a lot better for that person if, that just, if it just looks the same in both places. Right. And it's, it, it goes beyond even to, uh, oh, I can't remember who gave this talk, the ABCs of accessibility uh, at the IA conference, Sarah. It's, it's linked in that article too. Um, her oh, handle no, is at Kira Bug. Yeah. First day. <laughs> um, it's great. Anyway, one, one of the big things I took away from that is um, also thinking about, oh, I can't remember the phrase, but like fleeting disabilities, right? Like temporal, the ones that are not not permanent. And this idea, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot during the pandemic, like we're all completely sidetracked, um, completely exhausted, uh, having a hard time with cognition anyway, like in general, I don't know about you two, but like, I can't remember words for things or form complete sentences half the time. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And th with that fog in the way also, then the coherence gap gets even bigger. And so it, it, you know, there's wide ranging implications um, in terms of accessibility there, whether, you know, we're just talking brain fog or we're talking folks who are using assistive devices to make sense of the internet. 
I mean, yeah, 100%. I, I, I think that it's, it comes back to like setting the ego aside and knowing, you know, not only looking at that wider context of what people are actually trying to do with our, with our site or our software, but also that they're probably using 3% of their brain power. They're thinking about a whole lot of, they're thinking about their bills. They're thinking about their kids. They're thinking about their job. They're thinking about COVID. And then part of their brain is being used. <laughs> yeah. And on docs, we're, you know, we're talking about folks who are doing extremely complex tasks, right? Uh, this content is geared towards, uh, you know, mostly developers and other technical users who are trying to piece together complicated things in a complicated environment in a complicated world during a pandemic. Uh, so <laughs> that adds up. Uh, it's Ann Gibson, I remembered. She has a great talk, and uh, I think there's an accompanying article called the, An Alphabet of Accessibility, and she has cards um, that you can buy that have the uh, the letters on them, which I highly recommend. Um, and uh, I think, like, to, to your point about, like, how it benefits so many people, I think that's really important. Um, one of the things that uh, I, I hear people making a lot of uh, utilitarian arguments for accessibility, which are important. I make a lot of them in my article. Uh, I think it is also extremely important to recognize that this is a human rights issue. Um, and uh, especially as it becomes way more popular to talk about situational disabilities or temporary disabilities, that kind of thing. It's like, cool, that is true. Um, however, only some disabilities are actually like human rights issues that we as information architects have a chance to do something about. Um, and so we can focus on that. I deliberately uh, say people with access needs because that covers all kinds of things um, that accessibility is, is intended to address outside of identity. Um, so that was kind of like my attempt to be as precise with my language as possible. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, and like not to, not to moral grandstand here, but it's in the same um, conference where I gave that first, where I gave this uh, accessibility talk for the first time, there was also a kind of round table on like ethics and information architecture. And it was a lot of people having um, very, very interesting, um, but very kind of like lofty conversations about, um, you know, what does it mean to use a structure to exclude and what does it mean to do this and that. And I had had conversation after conversation with other information architects there who said, yeah, I just can't get anybody to pay for accessibility. And I'm like, great. I understand that that is hard. That's ethics. Like <laughs> building inaccessible structures, like that's ethics. So mm -hmm. this is a thing that we can do better. It's like really practical. Cause honestly, I don't know what to do about a lot of the big, uh, the big philosophical questions. However, I can build a content model. Yeah. yeah. And, and we can, I mean, we can go back to that universal design principle of as we're doing this for, um, for those that have any kind of accessibility issues, we're making it better for everybody else. Um, we're making it for, I mean, when we have that nicely structured content, um, I don't know if you all have looked at um, Jeremy Keith's resilient web design. So he talks about it's he he released it under Creative Commons. It's completely free. You can and he actually read it out as a podcast, um, which is wonderful. Um, so thank you, Jeremy Keith, if you're listening. Um, but I mean, it's even just if you have a low low bandwidth, low low internet connection, if you have JavaScript disabled, like making sure that your structure, your content is nicely structured, and that if all that's coming through is the HTML <laughs> without any CSS or JavaScript, like can somebody still read it? Can somebody? Um, can somebody on a feature phone 
that's accessing the internet, can they read, can they read it? So, um, yeah, it's just, it helps the more that when, when we do, it, I, I, again, like I come back to universal design and curb cuts, like curb cuts are good for everybody, you know, and there, it, mm-hmm. the, those that were in wheelchairs had to lobby for this. I think it was in the 1960s. They had to actually, we didn't have curb cuts, like <laughs> until relatively recently because somebody had to make that case. And now it's better for everybody. It's better if you have a bike. It's better if you have a, if you have a better, if you have a shopping cart. Hey y'all, just a quick interruption. As of this recording, we are in the midst of cohort four of the OUX certification and enrollment for cohort five won't open up until early summer, 2021, but you can dig into all the certification video content, all the templates, all the resources by grabbing access to the OUX masterclass. And if, after going through the masterclass, you want to get certified, you'll be able to apply the cost of the masterclass to your enrollment in cohort five. So you can kind of think about it like a down payment. Once you enroll in the masterclass, you'll get access to the OUX Academy. And over the course of 10 weeks, about two to three hours of video lectures will be released to you each week. But you can consume that content totally at your own pace. You'll have lifetime access to it. So if it needs to take, if it takes you 20 weeks to go through it, that's totally fine. You're not just gonna get video content. You're gonna get checklists. You're gonna get exercises. You're gonna get assignments and tons of valuable resources. Basically everything you need to become an expert complexity wrangler. Again, you get everything that a certification cohort gets just minus all those personal touches the camaraderie of the cohort in the OUX forum, access to the OUX mentors, the one-on-ones with me, um, as well as me answering all your questions in the forum and in office hours, and of course the actual certification and a profile on OUX.com. So for all of that, you'll need to actually join a cohort, but you don't have to wait. You can start becoming that complexity wrangling, stakeholder whispering, IA facilitator extraordinaire now. You can start saving yourself and your team countless hours of rework, and you can start saving your user from the extraneous complexity that OUX helps you avoid. So go to OUX.com slash certification to learn more. From there, you can get on the wait list for cohort five, as well as get yourself access to that entire video library that is the OUX masterclass. Still not sure if you're ready to take the plunge? Go check out the testimonials on OUX.com. Okay, back to the show. Um, so another question I have about accessibility. Okay, so connected content is good. What about, so I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about um, landmarks, ARIA landmarks. Um, so an ARIA, can you actually explain to me what are the, what are ARIA landmarks? Um, and how are they traditionally used? And then I kind of want to talk about maybe how we could use them in OUX. Okay, my very simplistic understanding of ARIA landmarks is that uh, one, I know they're a little bit controversial. So uh, developers who are much more versed in accessibility than I am have opinions about like whether they're always good or good in certain circumstances or sometimes. Um, I believe they are basically just a way to identify what different areas of the page are supposed to do. Okay. Um, And so it just adds a kind of semantic meaning to the overall template. Um, so it's like you na- giving divs IDs. So it's not just a list of links. You actually say that this this div right here is the navigation. This is a nav 
lot. And it's, and it's a way of being standard about that across sites. Okay. Um, so one thing that I was wondering is, you know, when we have, let's say we have an object that has a lot of attributes, maybe like, maybe it's the patient object in, a, in an electronic healthcare record. So I'm working with a lot of folks from Athena, shout out to Athena folks. Um, and the patient, I mean, it might have 160 pieces of, um, of, of core content and metadata and connections to other objects as well, of course. Is there any value or could you see any value in like grouping those, not just visually grouping those, but actually grouping those like, okay, we have, um, I mean, just the data about pre-existing conditions, that might be 10 attributes all about pre-existing conditions. Like, do we group that together, put that all in a div, name that div, or is there anything that we can do there so that maybe we add additional, or is that just adding like headers yeah, in a really so, smart way? So I'm not going to... Um... I'm not going to advise on how to code this because like that is so far out of my realm of expertise. Okay, um, don't do there, that. <laughs> <laughs> there, might, there might be, uh, there, there are probably ways that you could use, um, uh, use different techniques in your front end development to make it more accessible. In terms of like deciding how to break things down, that's where I really come back to um, how ambiguous are the, the actual content items that you are trying to organize? Like, are they super clear and people really know what they are? or do they need more context to understand them? And then do you have clear groupings to put those things in? Um, I have a lot of problems with the like seven plus or minus two rule for grouping things in, uh, in UX information architecture because I think it tends to make people introduce new categories that don't mean very much mm -hmm. for the purpose of getting things down to an appropriate number of items. Um, so, I don't know very much about patient records, um, but uh, if there are natural, clear, and ambiguous groupings that these things fall into, especially if the things themselves are ambiguous, Yahtzee, like absolutely put those into groups. If the items themselves are going to be much clearer than anything you add on top of it, are you just making things into groups of nine? You know, is, is that really all we're doing here? Um, I, I had very different feelings about this before I started working on docs. Um, we are working with a largely technical audience, not 100%, but largely. Um, and their, their tolerance for length and complexity and the way they navigate through the page is very different from what I've experienced previously. So like we explicitly design a lot of stuff on docs for you to be able to control F and find something through the page. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. true across lots of access needs. And so that means like we don't put things in like hidden progressive disclosure boxes and that kind of thing because it won't show there. We'll oh. give you a long page because you can go boom, boom, boom and like find the 10 pages on 10 spots on that page where it's mentioned. And that's really valuable for our users. Oh, wow. You know what? I'm just going to show my ignorance. I did not know that progressive disclosure like, so it, it, any kind of like expand and collapse panel, it's going to be hard to search inside of that. It depends. Um, I think it's a browser issue. It's an implementation issue, but sometimes mm -hmm. depending on kind of how you have your little, your little things, uh, you know, hide information and show it, uh, a control F won't pick that up again, depends how it's implemented, but okay. we designed to make sure we can do that. Wow. That's, that's super interesting. Um, shout out to anybody that's listening that is a front-end developer and uh, an expert in accessibility and interested in OUX, please reach out to me, Sophie at rewiredux.com. We'll have you on the show. I want to talk, talk more about it. Um, 
Okay. So I want to go back real quick um, before we wrap it up here to just talk a little bit about the benefits. Let's go back to Microsoft Learn and how you've seen these benefits of it being durable and scalable. Can y'all talk a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah. So we, we launched Learn with something like 20 learning paths. Maybe we tried to get to, I think we tried to get to like 20 learning paths in a hundred uh, modules or something like that, which was a huge push from the content team in a short amount of time. It's now got over a thousand learning paths, I think, and somewhere around 4,000 modules, which by our standards, because Docs is very large, is actually still a relatively small portion of our site. But that's, that's a pretty good amount of growth. Um, one of our design principles on the IA team, team is that we design things for about 10x where they are right now, because things on the site can grow that quickly and they will be 10 times bigger before we have a chance to get back to them. So that meant that like we gave it more we it was just me at that point but you know uh we gave it the royal we uh, yeah right the editorial we um (laughs) gave it more taxonomies than i normally would for that normal that that amount of content um gave it uh a few you know we built in a few other things to make it so it would flex a little bit um and it's handled that uh that increase in size very well um we're looking at making some changes to the content model but none of it is actually about accommodating more things it's, it's accommodating all those things just fine. Uh, we don't have to do any rework for that. And, and you mentioned something on, on the kind of, on this durability side of doing, you know, there was some, that the, you had to do some more stuff on engineering. You know, engineering had to put a little, little bit more effort, but the way that you described it, it prevented you from developing yourself into a corner. Mm-hmm. And how did you, which I, you know, I see that so much, like, let's do a little bit more work now. Let's do a little bit more thinking now, even um, so that we can build that foundation that we can just kind of grow without increasing the kludge factor, um, which is what you just ironically see with so many products um, these days is, you know, you'd think that after five years or something, as you know, somebody starts a company five years later, it's going to be the most beautiful, elegant thing there ever was. And instead it's, it was better in year one than it was because it was simple. Um, but how do you, I mean, how did those conversations with the developers go and saying, hey, I want you to do a little bit more work now so that we can we can grow a little bit more strategically in the future? Yeah, a lot of it was really about painting the picture of realistically why that was going to happen um, based in the the business and the content space as we knew it. So like one of the examples that I can think of right now is that um, instead of having uh, the gamification be tied to the content itself, there's a separate object called an achievement. Um, And it's actually not wildly clear in the experience right now. Uh, but under the hood, it is an achievement. It is an achievement. It's a different object. And uh, when we were talking about how to do that and whether it was worth building this whole other thing, and I think there might even there might even be a whole, um, I think there's like a progress service and there might even be like an achievement service under the hood that makes that go. Um, so like, why don't we just say, hey, you finished content. Why do we have this other achievement? And I remember having a conversation with some of our developers and I was like, listen, we all know our VP. You know, he's going to give he's going to like want to give people badges for something else. Like he's going to go, he's going to want to have an event. He's going to want to give people badges for going to Microsoft Ignite. He's going to want to have a, a trophy for doing this, all these things that aren't content. And if we tie achievements, mm-hmm. strictly content, 
we can't do any of that from a business perspective. And uh, Rachel and I were actually just in a conversation this morning where there's a new uh, new epic happening, and they want to give uh, they want to give an achievement after a user completes two hours worth of content. That's really different than completes content, um, actually, in terms of like how you count it and all those things. So that's the thing we can do now. Wow, that's a great example. Um, Rachel, any other thoughts on just like how this created, how, how this process and doing this modeling work helped you create a more resilient and, um, and durable, scalable experience. When I think about resilience and durability, one of the first things that comes to mind is reuse, right? Because we are, I mean, we're doing so much content modeling every quarter. It's, I, I mean, it's kind of mind boggling how many new experiences we're creating and putting on the site for it being a single site. Um, we have a ton of different kinds of experiences that we're supporting. And uh, earlier I was working with some PMs who had this big idea for creating a, a kind of new space on docs for a particular audience. And uh, we did um, the noun foraging and we had like 48 nouns, all different of all these things that we wanted to create and give to users. And because of this process and this commitment to like durability and in the form of reuse, we actually went from these 48 like net new nouns to eight objects that we already have that we just wanted to use in a new context and, and use specifically for a, like a really targeted kind of uh, micro experience, I guess. And that, uh, I mean, we narrowed the scope of that epic significantly and we were able to get all the stakeholders to like such clarity so quickly because they're like aha we already have all the legos for this castle we're just putting them into a different shape like we're building a new castle for some new people and that is really where the power of like durability and scale comes like we're going to be able to spin up this very specific experience from building blocks we already have uh, on learn and elsewhere in docs and it's i mean the amount of brain space that saved for the whole team and also engineering time that it just like trimmed off completely is incredible. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, it's so interesting. You're, you call you're telling them, you know, calling them Legos and building blocks, which often we hear when we talk about, um, implementation systems, when we talk about the design systems, like, oh, we have these Legos, like we have this drop down, <laughs> we have, we have these ticky boxes. How are y'all working with your, cause I know Microsoft has got a design system. Like how are you working with a design system team? And is there any kind of like, we have our building blocks and you have your building blocks. How do we kind of mesh that together into sort of um, an experience system or whatever you would want to call that? That's actually uh, one of the areas where we're working the hardest uh, to figure out how we want to do that. Um, it's a bit of an open exploration at this point. Our design team on Docs uh, is really fun because we're kind of a startup inside of Microsoft-ish, culturally speaking. And so we're still establishing a lot of the design patterns we want to use on Docs, um, especially as Learn grows. So we started with Docs and that's like this very traditional technical documentation space that kind of looks like you would how you would expect. It looks and acts a bit how you would expect kind of old school documentation uh, to behave. And with learn, we've been growing a lot in terms of what design building blocks we want to use, what patterns our branding, all that good stuff. 
And so one of the things that Sarah and I have been talking a lot about is how do we take these object building blocks, these content model structures, and actually, you know, partner with uh, visual design to implement those into reusable patterns and like get them in the visual layer in a way that makes sense. And so, you know, to be transparent, we're doing a lot of experimentation around that right now, working with designers and figuring out like, how do we hand this stuff back and forth? How do we talk about it in the same way? How do we live in the same universe and, you know, build these scaled experiences from a content structure perspective and from a visual design perspective? Yeah, Sarah, do you have anything to add? Um, I think it's going to be fun. Um, I, the way we've kind of been thinking about it is that a lot of the, uh, a lot of the design patterns um, in the design system are at a, at a more micro level than a lot of the things we care about in the content model. Sure. Um, and we've been doing a lot of experimentation with how we store the content model and how we make it available to others um, because it is this long ongoing process and we build on pieces of it over time and a lot of people care about it. We actually store, they're like, like 47 objects in our content model or something right now, um, which is too many, but this is the experience we have. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and we actually store them and the associated information about them in JSON and then automatically generate documentation for the content model and diagrams and all kinds of stuff from it. Because otherwise, if it's just, that, that's what lets three of us do all of this. Um, and it lets us add on to it. Uh, so like Rachel was talking about the, the micro experience that she was doing. I think that was one of three big projects she was on last quarter. I, I similarly had three. Each one of those was about the equivalent of a new website in like my consulting life. Um, and so it really, handling it this way really lets us scale ourselves too. And so um, like engineers love getting stuff in JSON. Designers do not want that. <laughs> like that is not helpful for them. <laughs> and so a lot of it is figuring out like, cool, how do, like, what do you need? How do we get it to you? Um, we're coming back to the idea of like, hey, do we need to start doing page description diagrams again? Those are great. Like maybe we bring back some old school IA deliverables. Um, Rachel and I are, are really not product designers. Uh, Rachel's a little bit more than I am, but I'm really not. I, I cannot help you with your white space. Um, so uh, we, do, we do have to like figure out that handoff to design and how we're going to, to work with them. And that's, that's an ongoing process. Yeah. So um, if you haven't already listened to the podcast with uh, the episode with Dan Mall, so we talk about this and I think, I think we're all in the same wavelength here, but he gave a metaphor that, um, that I love that design systems a lot of people that are a lot of companies that have design systems, their design system is kind of like a box of Ikea parts without any instructions. And that information architecture, OUX, what we can bring is we can bring the instructions. So you have and, and actually make that design system specific and not just like, oh, here's like all the 10,000 pieces that we might need. No, how, would, how do we make a design system for our particular product? And that should actually be based on, well, what are the things that are being represented in your product? That's uh, a great metaphor. Mm -hmm. I, I have a, I won't go into it, but I have a lot of thoughts on design systems <laughs> and <laughs> IA's role in rolling out those design systems and maintaining them. Okay. Just give us like your top thought. <laughs> What's oh, the high man. level? <laughs> So back when I was consulting, I was helping to roll out a lot of design systems. And the biggest gap I saw was 
that exact like the instructions, right? Like how do I how do I use this appropriately? When should I use it? When should I not use it? What is the meaning behind this thing? When is like and specifically like when is it a bad idea to use this pattern? Like why would I use this pattern? I feel like uh design systems are great, but they're they're kind of um they're skipping this kind of educational piece teaching designers like how to use patterns it's like thing a thing we don't really talk about that much anymore like a lot of ux designers um younger ux designers i meet like don't talk about patterns they don't think about patterns they don't they, they've never like sat and been like oh like assessed why certain patterns are good or why they're used and design systems are kind of like feeding us these patterns without us thinking about why we should or should not use them. And I think that's where IA, like context, meaning giving it that semantic layer uh, can really have a huge part to play in building and maintaining and teaching people how to use useful design systems. Um, yes, 100%, definitely. <laughs> and so far we've been going really hard on kind of documenting the semantic layer in the content model. Um, so like we do have for each, for each content type or content object, we have like, why do you use this, when not to, what it's intended to do. Um, we have a record, we have architectural decision records for every content type, which is, or, you know, so shared among the content types, which is like, hey, what, uh, if you haven't looked up architectural decision records ever, technical architects use them, they're really interesting. It's basically like lightweight records of what is a decision we made here about how our architecture would work and why. And then you get to apply those the different content types that they apply to. Um, so for example, we have one that's just like, people are represented on the site as users. We do not have other kinds of people unless we have a really good reason to. Ah, interesting. It's great. Cause it means that like, Hey, you want a brand new experience or certifications. That's going to be part of learn. Cool. Your people are still users. We don't introduce something else. We have another one that's like um, an ad hoc group of content on the site is represented through a thing called a collection. So you don't just have lists of six or 10 things, you have a collection and that's an object and we can do stuff to that. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of those, which really helps it be consistent among the three of us making these decisions. Um, that's awesome. We're figuring out like how to, how much of that is like useful in a design system versus like too much structure. Cause like, God, we love structure and it's not always nice. Um, so like trying to figure out like what there is good and what there like is not helpful yet. And it's a, it's a fun process. It's good to be self-aware. <laughs> Not everybody geeks out on structure as much as I do. Um, this has been amazing. Thank y'all so much. Um, Rachel, y'all are hiring. I just saw this on LinkedIn. Is that correct? Yeah. So the team we sit on is looking for a principal design manager. And I will give a shout out for that role, if yes. especially for folks who love thinking about structure and patterns and design systems, uh, all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, so I've been sharing that out on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Uh, feel free to come find me or Sarah on either of those networks. Uh, we've got the job listing posted. I will definitely, I will post that in the show notes for sure. Um, Rachel and Sarah would be amazing, lovely people to work with. And um, definitely the people listening are going to be the people that um, you want applying for this. Um, cool. Any other, anything else you want um, the listeners of the OUX podcast to know about before we wrap up here? Um, go ahead and put a link in the description, if you wouldn't mind, to Known Item, the medium publication where we've been putting all this stuff about IA. We'll be keep 
be continuing to write there. There's stuff on accessibility, on uh, wayfinding. I'm writing up a thing on um, architectural scale and what that means for information architecture right now. Um, yeah, known item is great. Stuff. Yes, yes, definitely. We will we'll definitely link to that. Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you all so much for being on the show. It's been really, it's been super interesting. I've learned a lot and y'all have a great rest of your day. Thank you. you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit objectoriented.ux.com slash podcast for show notes. Our soundtrack is Fighter by Ruby Bell, courtesy of Sugaroo Records. Happy OUXing.